welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, folks, uh, as, as Christine mentioned, we are uh, finishing up uh, a trilogy of talks as part of a series called Jesus is Better. And I don't know how many of you have uh, heard those talks, uh, but for week one, I talked about money. Week two, uh, let me remember what I talked about last week. Yes, some of you. Sex. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I talked about that last week, uh, and, and, I, and I thought it was, it was a good talk. And so if uh, you're interested uh, in that topic, or uh, if you're interested in what I said, uh, please do check it out as well. But uh, like all good trilogies come to an end, Star Wars 1 to 3, Star Wars 4 to 6, Lord of the Rings, uh, not the other Star Wars, all good trilogies need to come to an end. And so this is our last talk, folks. Now, um, we all know that the last talk this morning is on the subject of power. Uh, we are doing a trilogy of talks on money, sex, and power. And I just want to start off with a confession. Uh, I spent the last two days working on a talk uh, that involved like redirecting privilege, addressing like a Christian dominism kind of a thing, and how do we combat injustice. And like last night, I was you know, steeped in this, and then I was like, this is way too much and way too complex, and I need to shelve it. And so uh, I decided to shelve that talk that I had prepared uh, for all of y'all, and I just want to put more work into it and be more prayerful about it. Uh, but so this morning, uh, I have another talk for you uh, that, that I believe you know, is very relevant to, to the subject, and I believe uh, it would speak to you as well. And so if it's not all too kind of flowy and not my usual style, please give me a bit of grace. But I believe uh, it's, it's a good message and it will speak to you. Now, Richard Foster has this to say about money, sex, and power. He says this, If money hits us in the pocketbook and sex hits us in the bedroom, power hits us in our relationships. Power profoundly impacts our interpersonal relationships and our social relationships and our relationship with God. Nothing touches us more profoundly for good or for ill than power. Now, I belong to like the best CCA in all of human history, and that is the Boys Brigade. I was part of the Boys Brigade. Imagine me in a uniform, I look stellar. Uh, I was part of Boys Brigade. So, you know, I signed up for the Boys Brigade because of how nice the uniforms looked. Uh, I was, I, back in the day, you know, you had the uniform that had like the white sash thing. Uh, that was for the junior people. But when you hit a certain rank, you wore a full-on suit. Suit, tie, you look absolutely phenomenal. And I remember I went to the orientation, and I saw this guy, he was decked out in this full suit. He had all these badges and he looked really, really, really awesome. And it was because of him, because of how he looked. That's why I signed up for Boys Brigade. Call me shallow. But, you know, and, 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 I, and I signed up for this. And lo and behold, I, I, I got to know this person and uh, he lived uh, right across the road from me and we'll take the bus to and fro from CCA, from school, together. And this guy was three years my senior. He was uh, let, me, let, let, let me just describe him. He was just this tall guy. He was like 180, fit, very handsome. Like all the girls loved him. Uh, he was like, he had, was a warrant officer. He had all these badges. He's just a phenomenal dude. Coincidentally, his name is Desmond. And I tend to have, you know, <laughs> nice looking senior Desmonds around my life. But uh, yeah, so you all need a Desmond for your life. That's Desmond. Um, so... So, but, but one of the things he, he, he did for me was, you know, he was three years my senior. He was sec four or sec one, and I really didn't think that I'd have a good relationship with him or any kind of friendship with him, but he would befriend me. He would give me advice. He would, uh, you know, ask me more about my life, and uh, he would encourage me, inspire me. And in many ways, you know, I, I kind of went into secondary school being this kind of timid 
boy who didn't really know I won, but it's because of his influence that I entered in a kind of confidence, my self-esteem kind of grew, and he inspired me to uh, go after this award called like the Founders Award, which was like highest award in UK, and uh, he, because he got it, and I was inspired to do the same. Now, he was a person that I would describe as using his power, using his position, using who he was as a means of lifting up, of elevating the life of another. I, in many ways, was blessed by the power, the position, the authority that he had. Now, fast forward, I was 15 years old, and I just got promoted to sergeant, right? And it was my first duty as company orderly sergeant. And it was my, my role to uh, inspect the uniforms of all of the recruits. And I remember uh, there's this boy, he came in, and I looked at his uniform, and there was like this one metal thing that was missing from his uniform. And so I began to grill him, right? This is my first role as a complete orderly sergeant. I was like, where's that buttonhole? Where is it? And then he said, my grandmother forgot to put it in for me. <laughs> and I don't know, folks, what came over me, but I felt like, you know, my, my, I felt this surge of anger rise from like my belly all the way to my head. And, you know, I just felt like hot in the f and flushed in the face. And I just, I am not proud of this. I just went off on the guy. I just scolded him, berated him. And, and I just said all these nasty things to him. Uh, and he ended up crying. He ended up crying, crying really badly. And, uh, and of course, in that moment, I felt guilty. You know, I just made this boy cry. I just made this boy uh, embarrassed uh, in front of all these friends, all these people. But at the same time, I was impressed myself with the amount of power I had. And the, the fact that I had a kind of power to influence, to impact someone, to make someone feel that way and get away with it. I was you know, really relishing in the power that I had and what I could do. And you know, in these two stories, you see a contrast of powers, don't you, right? For one, it was a power to lift up, to elevate the life of the other. For another, in my case, it's the power to oppress, to make someone feel lesser, to use my power as a means of, you know, uh, facilitating a kind of domination and making myself feel better. Now, before you judge me, which some of you all are, I can tell, <laughs> consider, you know, if you have ever done something from a position of power, you know, be it to your employees, be it to people that you manage, be it to a service staff or an operator on the phone, Right, because you had power, you had the means, you had the, 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 the position to do so. You, you know, were nasty, you were, you, were, you were oppressive, and you could get away with it, and, and, and you want to be none the wiser. Consider if that has ever happened in your life. Power, it can be something to bless. Power, it can be something of a curse, isn't it? Now, in our culture, we are taught from an early age that the acquisition of power is a good and worthy goal in life. Having power is equated with being successful, especially in the corporate or political world. Now, whenever the subject of power is broached in the church, it's often done so in a positive light, isn't it, right? We need more power to heal, more power to deliver, more power to overcome, more power to see heaven invade earth. Today, however, we aren't focusing on power as, is, as in power of God flowing through the veins of the people of God, but rather we are focusing on the desire for power that is an inordinate desire to rule, to reign, to be in control, to dominate, to succeed at the expense of others, an autonomy outside of God's goodwill and intent for us. Now today we'll be talking about the subject of selfish ambition. 
selfish ambition in relation to power this morning. And I'm sure many of us gather that ambition can be a good, but it can be a bad thing. Ambition can come at the, at the expense of a love for other, love for people. And haven't we seen this played out in our world today where people are vaulted into positions of power and through oppression, through abusive means, have, have sought to uh, amass a greater influence for themselves. Now, while there isn't explicit instructions in the Bible about how we are to use or wield power, particularly influence in certain settings, uh, we can gather that there's this consistent theme all through the Old and New Testament. And that is this, that as God's people, we are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, body, strength. And we are also called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, this uh, command, love your neighbor as yourself, or do unto others as you would have others do unto you, is commonly referred to as the golden rule, right? We know this. This is the golden rule. But however, our culture today has another version of the golden rule, and that is this, he who has the goal makes the rules. And so in a sense, this is what we are contrasting today. One golden rule that, that, that says that one... When one has power, it should lead to a self-giving, self-sacrificial kind of love. And the other that says when one has power, it should lead to ambition, accumulation that leads to recognition and domination. A contrast of golden rules. But this morning, we'll be reading a couple of passages of Scripture before we begin the word of prayer. Are you with me, folks? Yeah. Let us look at the word of the Lord together. Luke chapter 10. This is God's word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his, into his harvest field. And then Jesus said, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Skipping down verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Reading also Philippians chapter 2. This is a letter of Paul to the church in Philippi. He says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. For this morning, we'll be speaking on the subject, Jesus is better than selfish ambition. Jesus is better than selfish ambition. We're saying that the way of Jesus, the way of humility, the way of self-sacrificial, self-giving love is better than ambition, is better than endless accumulation that leads to domination. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Jesus, our hearts are so full of gladness, even in this moment where we are gathered together as a family. And God, we just thank you for your sustaining grace that's upon our community, 
upon our lives, Lord, we look to you as the author and the perfecter of our faith. We know, God, that we live this life of faith not in our own strength, nor have we persevered to this day because of our own ability, know-how, skills. But it's purely because your spirit is in us, your spirit renews us, and your spirit sustains us. Same can be said of this community. It's not through wise leadership that we are here today. It's not through great programs, initiatives, or know-how. But it's you, Holy Spirit. You have led us. You have guided us. You have preserved us. And you have sustained us. And so, Spirit, we just look to you even in this moment as we look upon the words of Scripture. Spirit, you are the one who brings illumination. You are the one who leads us into truth. You are the one who stirs the deep things of God in our hearts. You are the one who brings us to conviction. So, Spirit, we ask that you'll come and have your way in this place, in our hearts. Lord, we yearn to walk in your way. Help us, we pray. In your name. Amen. Now, remember we had this uh, exercise that we did in primary school, and it was part of an orientation thing, and uh, we had to pick an adjective each to, uh, that, that started with the same alphabet uh, to describe ourselves, right? And so you had curious, Cassandra, or like fun, Felicia. The adjective that I picked for myself was this. I was ambitious Andre. Ambitious Andre. Now, if you knew me when I was a younger person, you would say this, Andre was ambitious. I had all these goals, desire, uh, plans for my life. I had a life full of ambition. Now, at some point in my discipleship, uh, I had a youth leader who was very well-meaning said this to me, Andre, make sure you're not consumed by worldly ambition. Worldly ambition. And it was the first time in my life I've ever heard that phrase, worldly ambition. All my life, I knew ambition to be a very good thing, right? It meant drive. It meant that you're filled with purpose. It meant that you're going somewhere with your life. And all of a sudden, this person came and said, beware of worldly ambition. And I was like, ambition? Is it worldly? Is it a bad thing? I thought it was a good thing. And, and you know, I had this kind of knee-jerk reaction where I concluded that all manner of like drivenness, of a desire for advancement, promotion, opportunity, it should be clamped out. A Christian should be satisfied with a subpar, mediocre life. Ambition is bad. But is that really the way we ought to think about ambition? Something that should be primarily driven out from the lives of the people of God? Or is it something that Jesus has called us to capture and steer towards His kingdom? Now, in the word ambition is praise, whereas sometimes in the church, ambition is sometimes considered as a vice, as a thing that traps, that keeps the people of God bound. But I don't think the question or the, the, the issue is so much ambition, but rather what we are ambitious for that we ought to grapple with. Ambition, we all know, is one of the dominant values and forces in the world we live in. However, ambition is a complex thing to, to grasp if you are a follower of Jesus. We ask the question, is it godly or is it ungodly? Is it good or is it bad? How much is too much? How much is too little? How are we to think about Ambition. Now, it's interesting that the NIV translation of the Bible uses ambition, the word ambition, seven times. Five uses of the word ambition are all negative uses, and two of them are positive. Paul told the Romans, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel. Uh, he will also say in Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. 
And so here, even in scripture, we can tell that ambition has both a negative side as well as a positive side to it. The Christian philosopher and author James K. Smith uh, once noted that ambition is this multifaceted, multi-splendid, and often malign thing. He said this, if you keep walking around the phenomenon of ambition, you'll start to note a couple of features. First, the opposite of ambition is not humility. It is sloth, passivity, timidity, and complacency. We sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining that the ambitious are prideful and arrogant so that those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch out into the deep get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. But this imagining is often just a thin cover for a lack of courage, even laziness. Playing it safe isn't humble. He goes on further in the book to make a case for what we will call a sanctified ambition, a holy ambition to have courage, to not be lazy, to not settle for the comfortable, to not play it safe. It's something to be captured. There can be such a thing as godly, holy ambition. Now we'll explore this uh, later uh, on in the talk. C.S. Lewis, however, had this to comment about ambition. And this is a very interesting paragraph. Track along with me. He says this as he reflects. Ambition. It isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as it can be possibly acted. But the wish to have his name in bigger type than the other actors is a bad one. What we call ambition usually means the wish to be more conspicuous or more successful than someone else. It is this competitive element in, that, in it that is bad. It is perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or to look nice, but when the dominant wish is to dance better or look nicer than the others, when you begin to feel that if the others danced as well as you or looked as nice as you, that you would take all the fun out of it, then you are going wrong. And here we see two facets of what we would call selfish ambition, and they are domination and recognition. Domination, I have to be better than everyone else. Recognition, everyone has to see me being better than everyone else. And Lewis would say that this desire, this uh, thirst for domination, for recognition, uh, does kind of damage to the soul, a selfish ambition. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, we want to win. And we want, to, we want everyone to see us Winning. It is ultimately, this desire is ultimately self-defined. It seeks to benefit, fulfill one's selfish desire, and it's done often at the expense of others. It is a desire for power to prove and to validate oneself. And ultimately, it's a love that is inverted, that is rooted in the love of self, domination and recognition. Now, I have another quote before I get into the text. Jeff Cook makes this uh, observation about the effects that of loving oneself in an inordinate way, living for oneself, and how it does damage to the human soul. He says this, The more I make my life, my well-being, my enlightenment, and my success primary, the farther I step from reality. Thus, the hellbound do not travel downward, they travel inward, cocooning themselves behind a mass of vanity, personal rights, religiosity, and defensiveness. Obsession with self is the defining mark of a disintegrating soul. Obsession with self is the mark of a disintegrating soul. You know, the folks, the world changed as we know it, uh, I believe, on the 9th of February 2001. The 9th of February 2001, the world changed as we know it. How many of you remember this event? 
it had this earth-shaking ramifications all around the world. Like we felt it in our heart, in our soul. The whole world felt it. How many of you know what happened? 9 February 2001? It was the day Facebook added the like button to the post. It's the day Facebook added the like button to the post. And previously in a different time when you just put up posts just for the, the fun of it, just to update your friends. Now we had a, a whole culture where people are putting up stuff in order to be liked, appreciated, and validated by others. And all of a sudden, we have these pages that are curated around the self, around what we want others to think of us, around what we want others to approve and appreciate about us. Now, this reminds me of Paul's line in 2 Timothy. He says this, that in the last days, people would be lovers of self, lovers of themselves. Now, this kind of like goes against, you know, the grain of our culture. We thought self-love is the highest ethic, but scripture will say otherwise. When we think of the end times, we typically think of the end times being characterized by disaster, by wars and rumors of war, but nowhere do we often think about it as one that is characterized by a kind of apocalyptic selfishness, a love for self, selfish ambition. And that's what Paul would say, that in the last days, the end of all days, will be characterized by people fending for themselves, by people being obsessed with their own goals, their own desires, a kind of narcissism emerging in the church, in the lives of the people of God. This is what will characterize the end of days. However, the truth is, selfish ambition can often be guised under a Christian rhetoric of pursuing God's favor and increase for the sake of God's kingdom. Christians then in that framework are to be blessed, to succeed, to have influence, to live with great influence. And so, you know, by extension, Christians are to hold the seeds of power in society and our world because that is how the kingdom of God is to be advanced. Now, this forms the basis of what some people believe that Christians are to hold political office, other places of power because it is the sole key to the transformation of our world. If only there were more people in power who followed Jesus, that would be a game changer because that would finally make the world as, it intends, as God intends to be. We need to put more people in the seats of power. We need to conquer more spheres of society. That is how God intends for the world to be changed. While there's certainly a good, good that comes when Christians hold on to seeds of power, I think of a figure like William Wilberforce and the great work that he's done for the world. And he held a seed of power. He was a parliamentarian, a politician, and he did amazing things with the position that he carried. But the idea that Christians have to, you know, through conquest and conquering, take over the world isn't really rooted in the Bible. We don't see it being the faithful witness of the church all through history. Neither the Bible nor history supports the idea that holding position of power is the key to bringing God's kingdom on the earth. History, in fact, tells us that more often than not, the Christian faith has thrived as a life-giving minority rather than a political majority. The kingdom of God has been historically advanced through subversive acts of love by unnamed individuals who lived in often perilous times. Final quote before I get into the text. Here's Lewis says this. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just, were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And I brought up that quote is because, you know, I think part of the ineffectiveness that we're seeing in the church today is because many of us have bought into the lie that 
kind of worldly ambition, accumulation, achieving my own goals in my own time is the highest ethic. And it's so out of sync with the witness of the church, with what Jesus has called us to in Scripture. Amen? Right, let's uh, get into the text. Now, we are looking at uh, the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now, this is one of my favorite uh, stories uh, in the Bible uh, for many reasons. Now, we read of an account of a group of believers who, uh, in this story, I believe, were caught in a trap of competition, of ambition, of wanting more power, of wanting greatness for themselves. And this group of believers was simply called the 72. The 72. And it says in Scripture, after the, this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Now, just as a test of biblical knowledge, many of you are steeped in Bible and commentaries. How many of you uh, can name me just one person who was part of this 72? Anybody? Anybody? Probably not. Because their names are not reflected in Scripture at all. They were just called the 72. Uh, we know nothing about them. They seem to be, uh, in my view, a kind of a B team. A B team where, where Jesus is concerned. Like he had the 12, which was the A team, and then these were the B team. And the 12, they had names to them, but the B team, they were just the 72. The 72. Right? And I would imagine Jesus addressing the crowd like, yo, the 72. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I don't think he did that. Maybe it was just me. But... These were the 72, and they were nameless. They're not known. They were not part of Jesus in the circle. They were his disciples, but they were, they were not the disciples, you know, if you know what I mean. And, you know, I can imagine how some of them must have felt, right? You know, they were part of this community of followers of Jesus who were pursuing him. And Jesus would then select the 12 disciples, right? He'll call out the 12 out of this group of people. And I can almost imagine, right, these people on the crowd feeling indignant, right, that they weren't chosen, that other people were chosen instead of them, right? You might be thinking Peter, right, he confirmed a flick out one, right? James and John, like, they have a temper issue, they might just burn everyone, right? Or Judas, really? Huh? But sure enough, Jesus chose the 12 of them by name, and then he lumped the rest into this group called the 72. And, uh, you know, just imagine yourself, right, being a part of the 72. Perhaps uh, you, like I believe they were, uh, were waiting for an opportunity to prove yourself, right? For waiting for opportunity. Like if Jesus could see what I could do, he would invite me to be part of the 12. Perhaps they're waiting for opportunity to show to Jesus what kind of disciples they really were. And we read that their moment came. Christ called the 72 together and gave them a ministry assignment, right? Uh, you read the text, right? He planned to send them out against him, uh, ahead of himself, that's what the text said, to all places that he planned to visit. Now, first, you with me? Okay, Jesus gathered this group together, and then the, the, the text says that he gave the 72 power to heal the sick, cast out demons, and to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand. And then, off they went, Right? Then, 72, receive power. They receive power to do all the good stuff. And then, the text said that they did just that. They went out and it worked. 
they cast out demons, they moved in the power of Jesus, they started preaching with passion. Then the small miracles of healing eventually moved into demonic deliverances. They were moving in power, they were doing the stuff. Now, this is the kind of context that we had, right? So these 72 who were kind of on the fringe, wanting to be in a, in a circle, kind of having this kind of competition in heart, like, I just want to be in there. And then they were given an opportunity to prove themselves, and then they did it. They did the stuff. And so we read later on that they, they came back to Jesus, right? We can imagine their thoughts as they returned to Christ. Jesus, like, we, we have done all these things, right? You know, the 12, have you heard they had issues with casting out demons? They couldn't cast out demons, but we did it. We are more powerful, we should be in your inner circle. And it looks at Count, right? Their exuberance about their success and ministry was evident. It says this, that the 72 returned with joy, with joy. They were happy, they were glad, they were excited. And, it said, and he said this to Jesus, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And with bated breath, right, they waited, right? This is their moment of recognition, their moment of reward, the moment where Jesus would invite them into the inner circle. They were full of hope and waiting for applause. But then it never came. It never came. Rather than congratulating them for their spiritual performance, Jesus challenged their understanding of what ministry was about. We read that the 72 focused on the outcome of serving God, right? They said this, even the demons submit to us in your name. Even the demons submit to us in your name. Like, look at that, Jesus. Now consider for just a moment, where do demons live and where do demons dwell? They do so in people, in people. Consider for a moment that these were tormented individuals who had lived a life bound, bound in oppression. And the 72, 72 will come back and instead of talking about the people, the lives that were transformed and the lives that were now healed because of Jesus' power, they sought to, they, they, they found great significance in the outcome of their ministry rather than the lives of the people who were changed. And we notice that Jesus and his ministry was not focused on impressive supernatural events, but rather on the people who were delivered. Here we see an instance where ambition, this desire for greatness, power, recognition, domination, we see an instance where that came at the expense of someone else. Someone else was now an object, a tool, a means of my validation. People stop being people. People being, become tools and, and means to which I get what I want. In response to the Senator's request for applause, Jesus said this, now, it's a bit of an overkill statement, if, you, uh, if, if I can be honest. Like, uh, if someone asks me for applause, I may not say this, but Jesus did. He said this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus, you know, in this instance, he does a couple of things. First off, he puts the demonic deliverance he saw into perspective. Jesus saying, in effect, like, hey, you think that you are such a big deal because you cast out a few demons? I saw Satan thrown out of heaven. <laughs> yeah, I don't boast about it. I don't talk about it often. Because Jesus cares about people. The point of having power in ministry is to glorify God by loving people. The goal of ministry is to set people free, not to simply enjoy wielding spiritual authority. Power has a purpose, and power's purpose is this, serving servanthood. We are not to relish in power and position in of, of ourselves for our own sake, thinking that it glorifies God, but God is most glorified when we take the positions of power that we've been entrusted with and follow in the life-giving example of Jesus, forsaking ourselves, 
re- uh, emptying ourselves for the sake of others. That is the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. Jesus was concerned about the harvest. The 72 were concerned about the success. He was compassionate. They were competitive. And then he would say this about the 72. And this would have stung them to the core. He said this to them. You are rejoicing in the wrong things. You are rejoicing in the wrong things. You're celebrating the wrong things. Now, one of the things we notice in our culture is the violent language associated with success, with ambition, with competition, right? We think of phrases like, he is killing it, or he is slaying it, or man, this guy, he is crushing it. Violent language surrounding winning and competition. However, there's often truth embedded in the language we use. To win, sometimes we have to crush those who are underneath us. To get more, to accumulate more, sometimes others have to be sacrificed on our path, on our road towards success. Ambition, selfish ambition, causes us to compete with those who are called to serve. Now, one of the real dangers of the spiritual life today is the possibility of being celebrated as a spiritual success while being an utter spiritual failure. To have all the measurements of winning in life, but yet have your soul completely forsaken to the world. And Jesus' measurement of success for the life of believers is not how much position, possession, or power we carry, but how willing we are to empty ourselves of all of that for the sake of another. Godly ambition. Jesus in this text is calling out selfish ambition, a desire for recognition, power, influence, even at the expense of a love for others. We think of this account at the Sermon on Mount where Jesus will rebuke them saying, you know, many of you will say to me on the day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not drive out demons in your name? Did I not perform miracles in your name? Then Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Think about the heaviness of Jesus' words. Away from me. And Jesus will go and say this, evil doers. Evil doers. Away from me, evil doers. When you think of the people in this text, right? They seem pretty sincere. They seem impressive. They had supernatural fruit. They were doing all the good stuff. Yet Jesus would say, get away from me. The question we will ask then is, why would Jesus call evil what people, you know, in, I, I believe in a certain sense, were doing good? Why would we call these acts evil? How could we reject such significant fruit, supernatural results? And then we reflect on the larger biblical narrative here, folks, and it becomes really clear that the person who uses others for their glory, for their their increase, for their promotion, is Satan. The person who seeks to accomplish things without submission to the Father's will is Satan. The person who does good but takes the credit all for themselves, wanting the glory, the honor, the prestige, the power, is Satan. And this passage, I put it to you, it should confront the motives of our heart. For when we turn even good things to be tools and objects for our own glory, for our own power. Now, most of us, I want to put it to you, have vision for our own lives and the lives of our family members, right? We have ambition not just for our own sake, but for the people around us, for our children, for our homes, for our spouse. 
But kingdom vision lifts its eyes beyond the boundaries of one's own concern. And it lifts its eyes to the, the, the needs of others and to the cause of God. That is kingdom vision. It's a vision not defined by what impacts you directly, but it's a vision that goes beyond anything that can seek to serve yourself. You, you, you're looking to serve others who may not even have the means and capacity to give back to you or to glorify you or to honor you. That is kingdom vision. Now, it's interesting that for a period of church history, sin was referred to as incurvators. Incurvators, and this is Latin term, which essentially means a life lived inward for oneself rather than outward. It is a love that is described as collapsing in on oneself. Love, as defined in Scripture, is meant to go out. It's meant to bless. It's meant to be a force of blessing. But sin has turned this love and distorted this beautiful thing called love and turned it into oneself. Luther would describe it this way. He said, our nature by corruption of the first sin so deeply curved in on oneself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts. But it's also failed to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. In essence, Luther is saying this, that this kind of self-love can turn even the noblest of pursuit into something for personal gain. It can turn something like as beautiful as loving the poor. It can turn something as beautiful as serving others, serving in church. It can turn something as beautiful as in this story, casting out demons into a means of self-glory. Incurvators. Even though the outward action may appear sacrificial, noble, and praiseworthy, is fueled by an obsession with oneself, one's happiness, one's reputation, one's ambition, one's power. James will warn us of ambition when he says this, who is wise and understanding among you, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. So there's this warning surrounding ambition, right? It's not just a sense of personal drive or a side personality kind of trait or temptation, but it is the beginning of a slippery slope towards disorder, towards every evil practice. It all begins with a love for self. And it's dangerous, it's insidious because it's often guised as something noble, caring for myself, loving myself so that I can love my neighbor. Jai Packer once said this, that you know, when we take an aspect of the truth of God and make it the whole truth, it becomes an untruth. And that's what we often do in the church. We emphasize and we fixate on one aspect of God's call to us, neglecting the other, but God calls us to take the whole counsel of His Word and live it out in totality. Are you with me, folks? So holy ambition. I like to define it as this. It's about being caught up in God's ambition for the sake of the world. So shifting your desires from your own personal agenda to that of the kingdom of God. It's about caring about the things God cares about and acting on the things he has called you to. You know, when I read through scripture and see Jesus interacting with people who were filled with ambition, a sense of personal drive and greatness for themselves, I noticed this, and I wonder if you notice it too, even the story. Jesus never quells their ambition. He never does. He never says, 
It's bad for you to ambition, have ambition. It's bad for you to desire greatness. Often Jesus would call them to direct this energy, this ambition towards things that are more worthy, more valuable, more beautiful of pursuit. He doesn't tell them to get rid of it, but he tells them to redirect it to what is appropriate, to what is beautiful. And so the call of discipleship is this. How can we move from self-seeking motives to a heart of a servant like Jesus? Now, we see selfish ambition and holy ambition contrasted this way. Selfish ambition, its motivation is power, wanting more, having more, dominating others. Holy ambition is motivated by love. In selfish ambition, we have this expectation that we will enter into positions of power. Didn't Jesus promise me this? that if I follow him well, that I would get all this stuff. Selfish ambition that seeks to benefit oneself, that uses God and his ways as tools, as means towards entering, it, entering into a kind of lifestyle that one God is then reduced to a kind of genie, right? You know, that, that you know, if I live in this kind of way, then you know, this, is the this is the probable outcome because God has said so. Selfish ambition. Holy ambition is, has this expectation of being a servant rather than holding on to positions of power, it seeks to serve others, even with its position. Self-ambition sees itself as entitled to a kind of prestige and privilege. Holy ambition sees itself as entitled to death, death on a cross, certainly death to self. Now, of course, this sounds very iffy and it sounds very detached from, from many of you, but I'd like to take you through a list uh, that someone uh, put up about uh, that, that describe uh, traits of people who are riddled with a kind of selfish ambition. Of course, it's a non-exhaustive list. And he goes on to say this, you know, there are often people most gratified only by accomplishment. They're preoccupied with symbols of accomplishment. Usually caught in the uncontrolled pursuit of expansion, tend to have a limited regard for integrity, are not likely to, be, to bother themselves with the honing of people's skills, tend to be highly competitive, and often possess a volcanic force of anger. They're usually abnormally busy, adverse to play, and usually avoid spiritual worship. And so we are then landing with this question. How do we then take our worldly, selfish ambition that is very much part of the culture we're living in and see it turned into godly, holy ambition? It's with that that we land and we conclude with Paul's letter to the church in Philippians. And you know, many times you know, as preachers, we feel a kind of pressure to dissect, to exposit the verse you know, and take you down line by line. But as I was reading this text you know, in my preparation, you know, I just you know, was enamored with the beauty of Paul's words to the people. And I want to read this text over you and allow for the words of God to just rush into your heart and overwhelm you and, and refresh you with fresh power. Paul would say this. This is God's word says to us, people living in first world, hustle-bustle, upwardly mobile Singapore, he says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, folks, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is how we are to live in our world today. Do not be sucked into the endless accumulation of more, but we are to follow the way of Jesus, seeking more and more to pour ourselves for the sake of others. Now in this text, we see two themes. I'd just like to highlight them to you. The first theme that we are to capture in moving towards living lives with holy, godly ambition is that we are to grow to be a people who are constantly and consistently considering others above ourselves. To consider others. Now, there is so much power when we take on a posture of considering others. There's so much power when we live our vision beyond the boundaries of our own concern. Francis Shaver, this great intellectual, once said this, when the church's primary concern is personal peace and affluence, the church is fundamentally dead in the world. Personal peace and affluence. Is it that God doesn't want your peace or your affluence? No. But when you make that primary, when you make that the chief ethic, when that takes precedence over God, His ways, the self-sacrificial love of Jesus, the church is fundamentally dead. The church was supposed to be this place when you stepped in and the boundaries of a concern get lifted beyond your family to the family and it gets lifted from the family to the world. That is what the church is supposed to be about. And whenever, folks, you read in scripture, whenever the church lost its way and lost sight of that vision, God would get angry and he would rebuke them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's this kind of story about the early church and we have statements and, and descriptions of how the church gathered uh, in the first century. Now, one of the things they did with communion, we, we just partook of communion earlier with the bread and the cup, and one of the ways they practiced communion was not just with a bread, uh, with a wafer or a cup, but they practiced it as a full-on meal. And they would hold these meals uh, in, in homes and houses. And what would typically happen is that the rich, the super wealthy, who did not have to work, would show up early to the feast, to the communion party. And they would get there, and what would end up happening is that they would begin to eat all the food, they would drink a whole lot of wine, they'd be drunk, they would uh, be in you know, the, the best spots in the house. And what would happen often is that when the working class got off of work, they would go and join the church for the communion, for this love feast. They would get there, and often there would be no room in the house. There would be no more food left on the table. Everyone else would be drunk or have, drink, have drunk their fill. And it was a kind of reminder that whenever they came to the feast, that there was such a dynamic as slave and master, even in the church. So Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 11. There's this curious line. He says this, your gatherings do more harm than good. Do more harm than good. They do more harm than good. Why did it do harm and what happened to the church? It's when, it's, when the church, when the people of God only have themselves as, as a primary concern, and lose sight of considering others. The church at its best is considerate of others. Personal peace and affluence do not define the operating system of the church. So first step, very simple, considering others. How can we be more considerate as a people? Considering the needs of others. Considering how we treat others when we are in positions of power. Considering not provoking others into jealousy. How can we empty ourselves for the sake of others? Let's lead us to the, the next theme, coincidentally. Paul would say, empty yourselves as Christ did 
on the cross. Empty yourself. I would suggest that in all religion and philosophy and literature, there's no more beautiful text in the world. You see Paul shifting from regular kind of epistle writing to almost like a hymn, like a song. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, hoarded, used as for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, even taking on the nature of a servant. Jesus would use his power and privilege very differently from, many, from the way many of us would use it in the world today. It says this, that Jesus took on the nature of a servant. Jesus had the nature of a servant. You know, folks, I do servant things, but Jesus had servant instincts. He took on the nature of a servant. I have servant reactions. Jesus has servant instincts. He took on the nature of a servant. The God of the universe, folks, do not let this get past you too quickly. The God of the universe to which all power, privilege, prestige, honor, and glory is due left his throne, empty himself of his rights, of his privilege, took on the nature of a servant, humbled himself to the point of obedience, even death on the cross. This is, a, this is our example. Our hearts often say, I will ascend, I will be as the most high for my own sake. I will accumulate power, prestige, because that is what God wants for me, to be blessed. But Jesus said, I will descend, I will go low, I will humble myself for their sakes. Jesus' example and grace, he gives us a vision for how we are to live our lives and heals our will to power and ambition. This is the picture we have of Jesus on the cross, folks. The cross is fundamentally about power being emptied out for the sake of others. It is about rights, privileges, power poured out for the sake of others. And the church looks most like Jesus when we would empty ourselves of rights, power, privileges so that others may be saved and served. To close off, there's this promise in Scripture in Isaiah 58. This is God's word from verse 9. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away the yoke of oppression with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you, love this language, spend yourselves, pour out yourself, give of yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. The church's light shines brightest when we would spend ourselves denying our own rights and privileges for the sake of others. Your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Folks, this is the promise of serving, of emptying ourselves, of denying worldly ambition and capturing holy ambition. The promise is this. It isn't just the underprivileged who are blessed, who are served, but the privileged who have their lives transformed and changed. This is God's word. Can we all stand? Now, I'd like to take you back to Luke chapter 10, that text that we worked through earlier, and take you to the end of that exchange that Jesus had 
with this group called the 72. He says this to them, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you. But then Jesus has said this, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you. Do not relish in your own accomplishment, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. Your names are written in heaven. You know, I first heard of the book of life when I was a young Christian and I always thought of it being like something that St. Peter would have, you know, at the front, kind of like on a podium or rostrum, and then he will flip the sh- 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 Andre, and then I'll be entered, I'll be allowed into heaven. And it did not evoke this sense of joy nor wonder when I think about it. But according to Jesus, in instruction to this 72, knowing, intimately knowing that your names are written in heaven is what keeps you away and out of selfish misplaced ambition. Jesus wanted the 72 to know that even though their names weren't written in scripture, that their names are written in heaven, though they are not known to us today, they are known to God. Their deeds, their love for God, their devotion will be known in heaven. And this frees us, folks, that we no longer have to compete or try to get approval or try to get recognition for ourselves such that God may love us more, such that we may be of more value to Him or people. Christ would say that your names are written in heaven. Be free to love me. Be free to live this world without selfish, worldly ambition. Cast your ambition onto my kingdom, onto my way. This is Christ's promise to all of us that we are known in heaven. We do not have to compete, folks. Our value and worth is secured in Jesus. Now I think of uh, a group of nobles, uh, William Wilberforce and Clapton Sack, and many of us will know what they did and who they are, and they were a group of extraordinarily privileged English nobles. And many of us will know the story, right? Wilberforce uh, would use his resources, wealth, his connections, and energies to campaign against great systemic injustices in his day. And it says this, that in the midst of overwhelming public opinion in favor of an even economic reliance on the slave trade, the William Wilberforce and Clapham set covenanted together to fight for the abolition. They were content, not content with the moral state of the nation and they worked in every arena available to see the reformation of the culture. And we all know that rather than building their wealth or like giving it to like a family foundation and seeing it last for hundreds and hundreds of years, many of them lost almost all their wealth two generations on because they had poured themselves out for such worthy a cause. And we know that uh, the Slavery Abolition Act was passed in 1833 and then some days after Wilberforce would die. Now I can't help but think of what is possible when the church, when the people of God move away from selfish, worldly ambition, understand their value and worth in God, knowing that their names are written in heaven, and from that place pour themselves out for the sake of the world to capture the heart of God, which is about the needs and concerns for the marginalized, for the poor, for the oppressed, for the ones in need. I wonder what is possible. So folks, this morning, as this first gathering coming back together, I want to tether us back as a church to what we are about. We're not about coming here to have some kind of experience. We're not about coming here just to hear a good talk and leave with a whole bunch of information. But the church fundamentally is to follow the way of Jesus in pouring themselves out for the sake of the world. 
It's not doesn't just come in the form of initiatives that we put out, but in our own lives, with what we have, with the spheres that we're entrusted to, with the positions of power that God in His grace gives us, we are to pour ourselves out. This is the church. Right, so let us bow our heads and let's even respond to God for that we heard. Jesus, we ask even this moment for your spirit to come and move upon our hearts for where we have entertained a worldly, selfish ambition. Lord, we ask that our eyes would be would cast away from lesser temporal things and lift its vision towards God, your kingdom, towards the things that concern you, the things that are upon your heart. God, we repent when we made, for when we have made our lives about our accumulation, about getting more and more stuff, about more prestige and more power. But Jesus, we want to follow in your example of emptying yourself out for the sake of the world. God, we ask that you will give us this surpassing grace in order to do so. Recognize that we can't do it in of our own strength. We need you, Jesus. So God, we pray even in this moment that you deposit in every heart a vision for your kingdom. Even speak to us now, we pray, for how we may be of service in the places you have already entrusted to us. Be it in the workplace, be it in certain relationships we have, be it in our homes, with our domestic helpers, with our employees, with all that. How can we use our power, our privilege, stuff that we have to benefit, to serve others? Speak to us, we pray. In your name. Amen. Amen. Let's go back to the